putting some words into the audio hole. Have okay. a lovely show. Thanks, and Tom. remember that seagulls are the worst. Seagulls are the worst. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how are you this week? I'm doing well. I recently followed some wonderful advice from Andy Jones and Tatiana Mack, two incredible individuals that I highly recommend following on Twitter and honestly everywhere else that they're publishing content and spent some time diversifying my Twitter feed by following more black technologists, black journalists, and in general, a wider range of people spanning race, gender, nationality, and profession. And my Twitter feed is a thousand percent better. I'm not someone who usually spends much time on Twitter, but now that I've made these changes, Twitter is feeling more valuable and less toxic to me as it's helping me discover some really amazing people and the great work that they're doing. That's excellent. Yeah. So also during this time and into infinity and beyond where I'm constantly asking myself, how do I fight racism and how do I support others fighting racism? I have found a wealth of knowledge from leaders like Andy Jones, Tatiana, Paris Athena, and so many others. I also have to say, like, I am so incredibly grateful uh, for the team at ThoughtBot. We have been having numerous discussions in Slack, Basecamp, and our company handbook that focuses on identifying where we're falling short and how we as a team can do better to support people that are fighting for equity and ensure that we are also an inclusive and supportive team. And part of that conversation, one of them that caught my attention in particular, because it's a conversation that you and I have had off air, is the importance of our words and how those words can be inclusive or they can be exclusive towards others. In particular, it's so intriguing to me that we're, we're a community that we still use master-slave terminology. And it's a concern that's been in a discussion that's been taking place for more than a decade. But it's something that we have been slow to accept that it's an issue and accept that there are ways that we need to change this and that we do need to change this. So yeah, I'm excited to dive into that because I know that's something you and I have discussed off air, but are discussing on air now. Yeah, I think to highlight it, and I'll I'll sort of take this on myself, but this has been a topic that's been on our potential things to talk about lists for the bike shed for a uh, long time, a number of months, if not a year. And it's only the recent urgency in the conversation that has let us actually have this conversation. And so uh, there's something there to sort of analyze of like, why is it only now that we're having this conversation? But yeah, to dig into the ideas a little bit, master slave is, is a particular one that you brought up. And so like with database terminology, that's often used. And that one seems so pointed and so obvious, like, okay, we definitely should set that aside. But there's this whole spectrum of words. And granted, if there's any conversation about that one that's still going on, that we should like hold to those ideas. Strong disagree, as strong as I can possibly be on disagreeing. But I think more generally, naming things matters. That's a thing that we spend a lot of time on in programming. It's one of the classically hard things. And to say that these words wouldn't matter, wouldn't have other ramifications is surprising to me. Like uh, ThoughtBot actually went through the experience of uh, changing the name of Factory Girl to Factory Bot. And that was one that actually got a good amount of pushback from the community. But as far as I understand it, there was a, a tiny, like, unfortunately, the actual release of that, there was a small blip in what had happened. And it brought, I think, a little more negativity than there might have been otherwise. But it was some work on ThoughtBot's part, but it was definitely worth it for us to take that on. 
now like it's just the new name it's fine it's like when companies change their branding colors everybody freaks out for a week and then it's fine and it's so so worth it for the words like similarly i i'm always pushing for if the domain language that we're using changes we should change the code to match because that subtle mismatch that disconnect is important so like as an example uh previously we used to say that users had accounts in the system but we've now started calling them profiles and that's this little small distinction but over time it can drift more and it's worth making that change because now the code better reflects reality that but so much more with these words that have deep historical ramifications i think at the end of the day you have to listen to individuals who say this is of critical importance to me and even if it was not necessarily something that came to mind for you initially the hearing that it is deeply important to someone else that that's what matters and you know for me these are words that now have deep importance and i want to be moving away from I wholeheartedly agree. I love that part where you said, like, listen to other people and how it impacts them and what it means to them, because words uh, play a different role in all our lives and how we respond to them. And it's interesting that this particular pushback uh, for when we do change some of this terminology. Yes, I understand, like, there's some discomfort for it. And then people who don't understand it, um, there's extra discomfort there as well. But it's also looking for like the technicality and trying to like fight about like, well, what's the intention of like when someone introduced this? So an interesting one um, that I had not considered, but we now have work being done uh, internally in ThoughtBot where we are changing our master branch to main branch. And that's not something that had occurred to me before, but we take an approach at it where we discuss it. We talk about, yes, this is something that's meaningful to us. And then what does the actual technical change look like? How will this impact others? We want to make this as smooth as possible. So that way it is something that others don't feel hindered by as we're changing the name of it. But then that pushback is unique where people don't want to change something that they feel so accustomed to and comfortable with. And then gets into this sort of nitpick fight of like, well, what was the intent of when someone like uh, when Linus decided to name the master branch master? And then there's arguments about that. And it's like, well, it's hard to know intent. So let's not devolve into that conversation. And instead, like you said, let's listen to people as to how these words make us feel. And also we can be more descriptive with our terms. Like if you're describing to someone who is very new and you're telling them about like, oh, this is the branch that we use for releases or for production, or this is like the main branch that you make copies from, there are other better terms that we can use. So other people just really start to lose me with their argument of saying like, oh, well, it'll be difficult. We can fix that. This is what we do. It won't be difficult. And find ways to not make it difficult. And then two, if you're just pushing back for comfort, then that's also an argument that has lost me because then you are sacrificing the comfort of others for your own comfort. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all of that. And I think sometimes I see resistance in general to change. Just like, why, why do we need to change anything? Like stuff's fine. And like you said, like we can make this easier if there is friction or resistance, but we shouldn't be the, the friction or resistance we should be in a position like this is actually the thoughtbot ethos in my mind so strongly of we are constantly seeking ways to improve to be better to use the right words to use the right software to use the right approaches and processes and all of those sort of things and so this fits so much with that thing that i identified as the core of thoughtbot and what i love so much about it so it totally fits in my mind in that sense but yeah, to, to poke just a tiny bit at the Git stuff, because I've seen some humorous ones on the internet, which I really enjoyed. Uh, one was someone saying like, yeah, actually, I'm just going to rename the, the master branch to Trashfire because that's more accurate. And I was like, that's funny, but throw away. 
But then I've also seen trunk, which is historically from subversion days. That's the thing. So you have trunk and branches. You branch off from the trunk. Okay, that that fits. I think I have a resistance to that one because it has some baggage with subversion, which is like Git was saving us from subversion. And so I'm like, I don't want to go back to trunk. <laughs> but I think so main is the one that makes sense. It's just straightforward. It's the word that like, cool, we got it. That's a great word. But the other one that is a contender in my mind is canon which I really like, like in the canonical sense. And so like, has is this in the canon yet? Is this canonical? <laughs> and I really like that idea and the like slightly performative, we're kind of being fancy today. But uh, yeah, I don't actually think we should do that one, but I did like it. I'll include the link to the tweet that had that. I forget who was the actual author of it. But uh, yeah, that was very enjoyable when I saw that. That's fun. I, I hadn't seen that one. I, I do remember seeing a tweet a while back where someone was also bringing up this point and saying, like, um, we have a new JavaScript framework that is adapted or created like every other month. And then people are like, oh, this is great. Let's rewrite our app and have like this brand new shiny toy. But then as soon as someone mentions like, oh, we should change the naming of the thing. It's like, no, this is the hill we die on. <laughs> and that's sort of like, we're so open to change. And we like the change. But yet then there's certain things like this, that it's this is the hill that people want to die on. And that's um, just not something that I agree with. Uh, there was some other changes that we're making as well, in addition um, to some of the terminology that we're using. And one of those is we have a new holiday, which I'm really excited about that we are starting with Opbot. Uh, so we are making Juneteenth, which is Friday, uh, June 19th, as an official company holiday from now onward. And uh, this was something that I wasn't familiar with. Have you heard of Juneteenth? Certainly with everything that's been going on, I've become aware of it. I don't know that I was aware of Juneteenth before this. And uh, this is another example of some of the conversations going on now for me personally, highlighting a lack of awareness and a lack of familiarity with some of the, the issues. Like these are longstanding issues. The thing that's happening right now is just a collective recognition, I want to say. And so I'm, I'm seeing that in my own situation. But Yes, Juneteenth as a holiday seems excellent, and I'm glad that ThoughtBot is uh, taking that step, and hopefully it'll go a little bit broader as well, because that is a, a pivotal moment in time. The the bit that I'm so excited about, um, oh, so to provide a little bit of background as well, because I'm also new to this event and wasn't aware of like its celebration, but it's a portmanteau of the words June and 19th, and it's a historical significance of the day that centered around June 19th, 1865 when the population in Galveston, Texas, um, they received notification or orders, really, that all slaves in Texas were free in accordance with the Emancipation Proclamation. So that has become a historical day and event that people celebrate in various ways. And for ThoughtBot, the way that we are choosing is we're turning it into a day of action. So it is a day where we can either dedicate our time to if there's some technical project that we want to contribute to, or maybe there is a protest that we want to be a part of, or there's something in our community, but something that is very focused around like we are going to dedicate this day towards taking action and social justice and fighting for that. So that part is a bit I'm really excited about because I love that we're talking about this. I love that we are making incremental changes in our terminology, but the action part is very important to me. And the fact that ThoughtBot is now going to give us that day to then be a part of our communities is really important to me. So I'm just, I'm, I'm really proud of my team and the ways that we're trying to push and identify the ways that we can improve and be better. One other one that I was excited to share. Uh, so Edward Lovell, developer here in the Boston office, 
He is, uh, I'm going to give a spoiler for an upcoming blog that Edward is working on, and perhaps by then it'll be published so I can link to it in the show notes. Uh, But something else that he is talking about is the importance of tone, since we're having so many remote conversations and how that can really create a positive or more of a toxic community in our Slack channels. And one of the examples he provides is someone says like their uh, application is broken. So if they're running it locally, for some reason, their local development isn't working and you could respond to it with like upgrade Ruby and then that's it. Or you can provide a more like, oh, that's terrible. Let me see what I can do to help you. I think if you upgrade Ruby, that may resolve your problem and let me know how that goes. But providing more empathy in that conversation using full sentences can really change the tone of that conversation and build a lot of trust in a team. So yeah, I don't know if I brag about my teammates enough. So I guess this is the episode where I do that. (laughs) Edward is very much good people and an excellent user of tone. On that note, do you share a struggle that I have on how many exclamation points is the correct and reasonable amount of exclamation points to use in online communication? Because man, that's an everyday struggle for me. I think I struggle with the number of yellow hearts that I use instead of exclamations. (laughs) (laughs) They are your personal branded exclamation point is yellow hearts. It is because I I won't use exclamation points heavily, probably for that reason that you're bringing up because I just I just never know as to how many I want to use and it's appropriate. Uh, So I use lots of yellow hearts to the point that I've noticed that when I join client teams, usually within the first week or two, I see a strong uptick in the number of yellow hearts that people are directing at me. <laughs> On one side, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. The other side, I'm like, hmm, strong branding, Stephanie. I guess that's good. <laughs> it is good. You're bringing a uh, lesser known emoji into the fold. You have a particular way of bringing positivity into the conversation. But it is definitely something that I struggle with of I'll constantly write things, look at it and be like, hmm, just reading those words now, like I know how I thought of them. And now reading them back, those words seem neutral to negative. And so then I'll add some or or I've just started adding exclamation points. But I'm like, every sentence ends in an exclamation point right now. That is too many. I seem like I might have had a lot of coffee this morning. So I'm gonna, let's see, I'll remove that one. That one can become a comma. Let's see what and I just go back (laughs) through and uh, yeah, but uh, it's great. I, I look forward to seeing that blog post when it comes out, which we're in the weird time shifted two weeks ahead, two weeks behind sort of thing. So hopefully by the time this episode comes out, that blog post will also be available. Yeah, I'm also excited for that blog post for when it is published. Circling back to our conversation earlier, talking about how words matter. So we talked about some of the changes where folks, uh, not just as a thought pod, but this is something other teams have been doing. And I believe GitHub is also in the works of doing where they're changing that master branch and renaming it to something like main or production or release. Uh, But there are also other terms that we've talked about. Do you want to kick us off with some of those terms that you've thought about changing or actively work to change? Sure. Well, I think like looking at the example of master slave in terms of I think of it more in terms of the database terminology, but it seems like sort of embarrassingly obvious that we should change that one. Uh, But I think there are more subtle examples. And personally, one that I came across that caught me off guard was uh, the use of blacklist and whitelist which is terminology that I find is prevalent. And frankly, I I didn't think much of it until it was brought up. And then the minute someone brought it up as one of those things that like you can't unsee, can't unhear, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, that actually, that's heavy that there's like a directed positive negative association with color there. And so uh, the versions that I've shifted to are allow list and deny list, which I don't like quite as much, but I think I don't like them because of familiarity. 
And if collectively people start using a common set of words that are different than blacklist and whitelist, then I think we can move away. But for me, it was just really interesting that it was something that was pervasive in common and that I never gave a second thought. And yet the minute that I did, it became so obvious. And that I can imagine if I was someone for whom those words did have the impact, that it wasn't someone had to tell me about it, but that I was living in that world, that I was you know, a person of color, then that would be something that I hear regularly. That's just a part. And now that I've heard it, it comes up often and it's subtle. And each time I hear it now, I have kind of a uh, reaction to it. And so I can only imagine how much more so that's true for individuals who are living a different life than mine. So that is a particular one. Um, I'm interested in any others on the list that ThoughtBot's working on? There are. So just to echo everything that you said, yes, that's one that I also am aware of now, uh, maybe partially to you. I can't remember exactly how this conversation came up, but that's one that I do hear more commonly and I'm more aware of it now. And it also makes me like cringe each time. Although I know that often like the person saying it, like they mean nothing by it. So it's never like a reflection necessarily on that person. Um, but it's just something that we can start to work within our culture to change. Honestly, though, the the fact that they mean nothing by it, the fact that this is just uniformly the way we say these sort of things, but it obviously has a connotation, is sort of the point, I think. Um, and again, that that's definitely the position that I'm coming from where I didn't notice it. And then now that I do, I'm like, oh, man, this is quite the thing. Yeah, uh, agreed. That's a great point. One of the other ones that I've seen come up is uh, saying like billable hours instead of not man hours. So there are just lots of great ways that we can reflect on the language that we're using and how to make it not only more inclusive, but descriptive. That's another one that I've seen come up. And this takes me back to a time I, I read an article. If I can find it, I'll share it. But otherwise, the emphasis of the article was talking about how do we help people change without making them feel attacked by it? Because that can be problematic. It leads to defense and we don't actually then get to the change that we want. And the article talked about like if you're with a group of friends, group of people, and someone says a term that you would like to change and have them not use that word anymore. One good way instead of calling them out and saying like, oh, you shouldn't use that. It's really bad and sort of like makes them feel bad as a person is just tell them, be like, that's not the word we use. Instead, we like to use this word. So that way you're not putting any sort of association on them as to like why they use that word, but just letting them know in this culture where we're at, we prefer this terminology and that way you can move on. I've really liked that approach as a way to like help identify when someone says something and you'd like to change it. Another one I've seen people striving to change is the word crazy. So whenever they're like, oh, I have this like crazy idea and myself and another developer, uh, we're really good about working with each other in that one. So each time one of us uses a term like that, just out of how Habit, we have that gentle reminder and trust with each other to be like, hey, I think you want to use this word instead. And that's been really helpful as well. I really like the framing of rather than you did something wrong, it's we use, you know, this is the language that we've collectively chosen. Have we ever talked about the inclusivity bot in ThoughtBot Slack? I don't think so. To quickly summarize, it's a Slack bot that when it sees certain words, it will comment in and say like, oh, perhaps you could use this or this or this instead which has been a really interesting experiment. Like ThoughtBot is, a, I think, a very inclusive and welcoming organization. And so unsurprising that the group of people that are collected there would be very happy with it. But it's always interesting when there are, say, clients in client chat room that is part of our Slack and it starts correcting them. But often clients are very willing to, to go on that. There's also some humorous ones that goes on like bros. That's the one. <laughs> So there's Roche Bros is right up the street, Roche Brothers, uh, but we always refer to it as Roche Bros. And so regularly it will reply like, why don't you try other things like mortals or friends? And so it uniformly became Roche Mortals. And so, you know, there, there are ways to be also playful 
it's important and meaningful work, but also, I don't know, this is maybe just my bent on life, but even important and meaningful things don't need to be deadly serious all the time. And so I like the little bit of fun and playfulness that also has come out of that while also doing, I think, meaningful work in changing the words that we use. So yeah, we can we can do some stuff. We can change some words. My other favorite one, in addition to Roche Bros, is uh, Five Guys. So the hamburger joint. So that's one where we're often talking about where we're going for lunch and someone will say Five Guys and the Slack bot's like, do you mean like five mortals? And we're like, sure, we mean five mortals. That's where we're going for lunch today. <laughs> I would and, like a uh, five mortals burger, please. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Smash Brothers, uh, when we used to play that during lunch, you know, back in the day when we'd go into an office and be together, you know, back in that decade, <laughs> we played <laughs> Smash Brothers during lunch and that became Millennia. Smash Go. So yeah, that that bot has been very helpful. Um, and I agree. I, I appreciate that sort of because that's that's who we want to be as a team. We're here to support each other and not be critical of each other, but find ways that we can all grow and be better individuals and colleagues and part of our community. Though so I wholeheartedly agree that we can have some fun with it while also helping educate each other in a more inclusive direction. Uh, so on a more technical note, how are things going with your client? Well, I have the two different clients, so it's always interesting. There's always at least something with each of them each week, but we'll start with the one of them that has been more frustrating this week where I've made less progress because that's always an interesting spot to start. I have been attempting to merge two systems that were split apart. So I came into this project and this was a consideration before I even joined the team, but this was definitely something that I focused on early on. There was a core Rails app and then it was split into such that there would be a new Rails app on the side that was for admin functionality. And that was where new logic was being written. A new API was built out to support a React-driven admin UI on top of that new API. But at the end of the day, what we found was that we were having to share model logic across. So there were discussions about, like, do we break out a gem or like an engine gem sort of thing to try and share all of that? And eventually, we've just determined this is probably more complexity than it's worth. It's added a lot of indirection and duplication. And now the models are actually starting to drift. And so that is where I pick things up and I've been trying to slowly wind it back together. And it's been tough. Uh, I have failed repeatedly, failed in a, in a soft way. Like I've, I've tried and then I hit some new reason that the two systems are resisting merging back together. Uh, and I think the interesting thing for me about that is a lot of times when I hear folks talk about microservices and there's any resistance, they're like, well, I mean, if we need to, we can always put them back together. It'll be easy down the road to put them back together, but it'll be better if they're separate. And this one definitely started from the normal place of it's kind of messy here. So we want a new clean place to start things. And that is often the story that we tell ourselves. And then things end up pretty much the same as always. That's just what is true will probably remain true or things of that nature. And so I'm now trying to unwind it. And it is just fighting me. There's clearance on one side and devise on the other. There's Rails admin on one side and React admin on the other. There's Blueprinter for JSON serialization on one side. And there's active model serializers on the other. And I'm trying to make it all work in the same app. And I think at the end of the day, Devise is the one that is giving me the most trouble. The most, It just keeps popping up in places it's not supposed to be. And I keep having to chase it down and tell it, no, Devise, not here. You're not in charge. Clarence is in charge over here. But it is impressive to me how much this has resisted and how difficult. This thing's only been going for six months, I think. And I'm trying to unwind not a ton of work. And yet it's still very, very difficult. And I have to do it in flight and not break the production system, like is my new favorite thing to do. So, yeah. Oh, that's a that's a fun fact. So it's only been in service for six months, you said? Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Yeah, that, that's interesting that that's already proving challenging to then sort of like bring that back into the same application. What's been your approach? Like, where did you start on this mission? So I, I'm definitely heeding the wisdom of Eileen Uchatel, uh when I had her on the podcast back just over a year ago now when we were at RailsConf. She gave a talk about the work that she and her team at GitHub did to bring their custom port of Rails and Ruby. I think they had both of them going on at some point, their custom forks rather. And her team's job was to get them back and reunify everything and get it so that they're in sync with the rest of the community. And then they've actually now they're upstream and they're sharing things back. And it's been wonderful for the community. But it was this, I forget exactly how long it went, but it was a very extended effort. And one of the things that she really emphasized was around breaking it into small pieces. And instead of saying like, there's this big project, we're going to do it for forever and eventually someday it'll be over but for now i don't know uh and instead trying to be very purposeful in the communication around well this piece is done and this piece is done uh trying to find the small parts to break out so the first thing that i did was bring across the data models so there were a new admin and then a log infrastructure that had been added into the new system but that was it otherwise it actually pointed at the core apps database and referenced all the models from that so the only data that I needed to bring was those, but I basically brought the model definitions across and then I pointed the new database at them and then I ported all of the existing data. That was actually super tricky because the new data started writing and then my foreign keys had gotten out of sync or like my integer IDs, they auto increment as is the way that that works. But now somebody over there thought they were ID number one and somebody over there also thought they were ID number one. So I had to figure out how to update the Postgres sequence or things like that and just kind of chase it around and do manual updates of CSV dumps of data. Thankfully, there wasn't a ton of data. Had there been more data, this would have been exceedingly difficult, but I was not working with a ton of data. So that part wasn't too hard, but it was still like, man, that was harder than I thought it was going to be. When you were importing the data, because you're, it sounds like you're relying on those foreign keys to then bring it over. So were they like the same record, but they're just in uh, different databases, and you're then trying to merge those two in the same, and that's why that foreign key is so important? Yes. Specifically, it was the admin logs was the interesting one. So the admin table on the one database, the new admin side database, that's where all the new admins had been created. And so I created that table in the core application, and then I was able to port that data over. It's like, okay, cool. But I didn't have stable ordering when I did that. I accidentally just, I dumped the data to a CSV on the one side, and then I imported it from a CSV manually, and that created the IDs. It did the auto-incrementing there. So one, two, three, four, up to whatever number, but it turns out that was not what they were in the first system. So then when I tried to bring over the logs, which referenced those at, like this admin did action Y at time Z, they were not aligned. And so I recognized that before I even started trying. But then I had to go through and I took the CSV and I did a manual parse. And like when I was doing the import, I had a transformation step that happened that said, if it says ID one, that actually means ID 17 in this system. And that was fun. And there was just a small enough data that you did that manually, like you knew like those particular records matched. Yeah, there's only 20 something admins. So I just needed to I did like a by email cross tab lookup thing. I don't know. That's sounding fancier than it was. This was some CSV munge and inclusion, but uh, we got through it. But yeah, now Devise is definitely the part that is resisting. And it's interesting. I'm now in a different fight with Devise in the other client app that I have. And so Devise is a wonderful project, but it also is a giant project with a huge API surface area. And if you start to step outside of its norms, or if you happen to be in a world where it's like, hey, Devise, you get to be over here, but no further. Devise is like, are you kidding? I'm in charge. I run this show. And I have to try and talk Devise down and, and get it to just you know be chill. 
I'm really curious because you're migrating the data over. So I'm trying to imagine how device was getting in the way of the data migration. The data migration device didn't have any issues. Right now I have two or three different ways to log into the app. And so I've tried to build up specs that cover that. But one of the actual auth mechanisms that we have is device token auth. And so it's using JWTs. And that's the way that admins log in because they're coming from this React app, which as an aside, JWTs, I've never been convinced of them. And this is certainly not helping. I'm hoping to actually port the app over to use cookies because, man, cookies are great. They're built into the platform. Love them. But I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if there are fundamental limitations of React admin that I can't imagine that there would be. Cookies just work, but I don't know. We'll figure that out. Yeah, so the data porting is not where the problem is. It's when I'm trying to, I brought over all of the routes and controllers from the admin app. And I'm my goal is to get that code merged, but deployed dark, essentially. So nothing is using it in the core application. It's all still running in the old application, but I've now integrated it into the larger code base. And I see if there are any conflicts, basically. And unfortunately, yes, there are. And I'm basically playing whack-a-mole where like, I fix it on one set of routes, but then suddenly as I try and log in on the other side, it's a clearance route, but Devise is kicking in and saying, like, I don't know what this user thing is. And I'm like, I know you don't. Go over there, Device. You're in charge of admins in that namespace over there. Stop it. I know you're talking to me, <laughs> but I love the idea that you're talking to your code like this all day. <laughs> Which I imagine you do as well. <laughs> I Here's the thing. I don't think I talk out loud, but I'm not sure. Uh, it is definitely possible. <laughs> I can actually ask my wife because now she and I are both working from the same household. And she could probably, I know I didn't in the office. I'm pretty sure I didn't. But maybe now that I have a little more <laughs> space and I, I can just yell, ah, device, what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm very, very hopeful that this coming week I will be able to finalize this work and be able to shut down the other app and only be running on the one. But um, I don't know. It's one of those things where I keep thinking I'm at the end and then it's like, oh, surprise. Here's another way that it doesn't quite work. You're going to have to figure this out. So I might have to switch to devise 100% throughout the app and remove clearance, which would make me sad because I really love clearance. But yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let you know how it goes in future weeks. How about you? What else in the world of tech have you been spending your time on? Well, speaking of trying to avoid failure, uh, along those lines, I have been thinking a great deal about failure and how to communicate failure. Uh, that sounds, I know, a little weird, so I'll back up and explain a bit. I am uh, implementing an API post endpoint that does substantial work, and it could take several minutes for that work to complete. And rather than have the client wait for that work to complete before getting a response, I'd like to perform that work in a background job and then have the client either pull the API to know when the job is completed or for the API to push to the client and notify that the work has been done. And I've been thinking about that from the approach of failure because we have like three separate important tasks that are going to be done in this job. And then reporting back to the user is important to let them know which of those three task failed? Was there a full success for each one? Did we have partial success? And then making sure that they have those details to go forward. So that's been a, a fun adventure. That's something that I haven't done yet, where I've had an API endpoint that then enqueues background job, but then the client needs to poll to then find out when the job is done. And I initially thought about going the polling approach. That's the one that just resonated with me out of the box. And then there's also the idea of using WebSockets, 
which this is a, a good approach for those. So if we wanted the API to then be able to form the client when the job is done, that has a really nice benefit. Uh, there's less latency. So as soon as the job is done, the client knows versus let's say if we're polling for the background job status every three seconds, then that means potentially we have a three second lag where the work was done, but the person on the front end is still waiting for that work to be done, thinking it's not done yet. So I've been exploring both of those. I haven't used Action Cable before. Is that something that you've tinkered with? I do not believe I have ever used Action Cable. And I have barely, like one Ralph Palooza, I poked around with WebSockets, but that's about the extent of it for me. So basically, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I haven't used them. So part of me would really love to go the WebSocket approach just for fun. So I get to play with something new and see how Action Cable works. And I do think um, for the project that I'm on, we are going to use WebSockets, but it won't be Action Cable. We're going to instead be using a service that handles WebSockets. And I have feelings about that that I'm still figuring out uh, just because honestly, it's from a selfish perspective of running an application. It already takes several services I need to run locally to work on this feature. And so it's then adding another service that I then need to run. But we are leveraging existing features that we have that already make use of these WebSockets. So I understand also there's reasoning for wanting to like follow a consistent pattern. So that way we're reaching this one place. But then it also feels like one of those opportunities where maybe if we started migrating over to Action Cable for some of the WebSockets, then we could eventually sunset that other application since it has that one job, but we have something else in Rails that could do that for us now. So I'll find out more about that in the coming weeks as this is something that I'm just starting to dip my toes in to understand everything that service does for us. It's just been interesting. Also, from the perspective, when I was working on figuring out how to communicate that failure. So if the job, if something in the job fails, I need to be able to have a return value. And I'm used to jobs where I just kick them off and then either something happens or it doesn't. And I either will raise up an error. There's usually some logs. So it's more like developer focused failure notices versus like user focused failure notices. And in this one, since I do need to get something back to the user, I initially thought about, well, we can create a record and then we can pass that to the job itself. And then we could store something on that record that either communicates one, it's status, because in that way we'll have a way to pull to say like, hey, record, are you done yet? Are you done processing? No. Okay, I'll come back and then go back and say, are you done yet? Great. Were you successful? Did you fail? So that's one approach. And then I was wondering, is there another way that I could do this without having to introduce a new table just because I don't really need that table? I don't really need to store that data. It's very temporary where I just want to be able to communicate a message back to someone. And I was having a conversation with our CTO, Joe, he mentioned that database tables are like Git branches, they're cheap, and we should use them often. And that was honestly the selling point for me where I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. I will introduce a new table. That sounds like a good idea. I mean, not for this project, since we're going a WebSocket approach, and I'm not fully certain how we're going to flesh that out yet. But I just liked what he said about, yeah, sure, just go ahead and create a new table for it. And I was trying to be fancy and think of a way around that. I've never heard that particular idea, although it definitely resonates with me that like database tables are cheap. I think it's it's an interesting thing around like you see folks reaching for Mongo or for JSON B or things like that, which actually this week I reached for JSON, which maybe we could talk about that in some future conversation. Uh, I was hoping you could talk me out of it, but I don't know that we'll have time today. Anyway, structured data is cool and database tables are cheap. And so if you can model your system, if you have a concrete understanding of the world and you're able to model it into the database, trust the database more than just about anything. So yeah, I that resonates with me, although it's not a phrase that I've heard before. So I kind of like it. 
I've done things in the past where there were sequential jobs. So like when this job finishes, it enqueues another job, which it might enqueue three more jobs, which when those all finish, then they do a thing. Those are extremely complicated to manage. And in particular, I think Sidekick or the typical background job processing system like we often work with is not terribly well suited. Like there are other event queue stream type systems or like Kafka or something fancier for that kind of event-based system that might make sense. But I, that sounds like it's overkill in this case and a database table totally works. But I've I've always wanted to explore that area of sequential computation sort of thing that's well-managed and well-structured. But yeah, in the past, I have built a system like this. And the way that it worked was um, we avoided all JavaScript entirely and we used the meta refresh header or head tag, the meta tag in the head is how I would say that if I were to say it completely. Uh, you can just tell the page to keep reloading. This was an admin facing thing, but it was very much like there is this workflow. It kicks off a bunch of jobs. They may fail at any point and we want the admin to know, but it may take 10, 20, 30 minutes. And so the meta refresh was just running, I think every five seconds. And then if the whole sequence completed, the next render of that page would not include the meta refresh head tag. And so it would just stop quote unquote polling, but it wasn't even really like, it wasn't JavaScript polling. It was native browser polling via reloading the page, the oldest fashioned way to do it, but it was awesome. <laughs> That's cool. So I, that is something that you just mentioned that I kind of ran into that I wasn't sure how to tackle was ideally I would like this job to split off three different jobs. Like we're doing three different things. I would love to have them run in parallel to speed up the work. But then I ran into that hurdle of like, well, I also need to know the status, which then if I go with a database record, that may be one way around that where I won't have to worry about it because then each job could have access to that particular record and then update a field on that record to say like this portion's complete or this portion failed for this reason. So actually, that's another good point for like why the record may be a really good approach to them way I could split this work off into into three different jobs, because right now I have it all in one job, just a sort of like a simple first approach, get it working, put it all in one place. And then honestly, too, it feels like a performance improvement that we're not quite there yet. Like this is a fine first pass, and then we can test it out and then make an improvement from there if we feel the need to split this out into three different jobs to speed up the workflow. But yeah, that was, it was all about like the failure message. Like, how do I tell mm. someone this failed? That has been like my driving sort of force behind this. And that's one nice bit about the WebSocket as well, because I believe from the job, it could then publish a notification. So instead of having to update a record, like a shared storage base to say, hey, this failed or this was successful this reason, instead it could just publish to something that's listening and say, hey, here are the results. So with the WebSocket approach, I may be able to get around not having to introduce a table and mm. a record. So that would be an interesting win for WebSockets. I feel like you've got <laughs> lots of competing ideas in your head right now. It's also funny to me that CTO Joe Ferris was the one who recommended a database table because the the anecdote that I'm describing where there was a system that had big complex workflow that sort of broke into a bunch of pieces and we did use database tables to represent each of those workflow steps and the hierarchy of them. And uh, when a job would wake up, it would check the status of the others. And if it wasn't complete, it wouldn't kick off the next. There was like tiers of jobs that fanned out. It was a reasonably complex system, and it was also very successful, and it fell over on its face. And Joe Ferris, uh, in parallel to the work that I was doing on building this out in Ruby and Rails, which was great because it got a product out there in the world, users were able to purchase it, give feedback, the system grew, they made money, everything was going really well on that front. But technologically speaking, it was not a foundation that they could continue on. So in the background, Joe was running a second line of defense and rebuilding the system using, I don't think it was Kafka at the time, but it was 
you actually probably know better because I think you worked on this part of the system, but there was a whole different event stream processing thing, which I'm super sad that I never got to work on. But like, it's interesting that we now have that shared anecdote, but we were, I I don't think we ever actually really overlapped on that project or like very briefly, Um, but it was very different parts of it that you and I worked on. Yeah, I think you're right that we didn't overlap. I think I'd started like a week or two after you'd rolled off or something like that. But yeah, it was a scholar project. Maybe we were using Aka Streams. I do remember that because I joined once we knew the Rails application was falling over and that we were then, like as you said, building a second line of defense and then moving a lot of this heavy processing work over into a Scala application. That was that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. So yeah, that is interesting. Uh, maybe in my case, just because like it's a very small feature, it's just like this one job or a couple jobs. Mm-hmm. It's not like a heavily used feature. And that particular work that you're describing, there's like some heavy computation work going on. So it was creating a lot of records. I guess perhaps that's the difference in previous Joe and current Joe's advice. Uh, yeah, I, it does not sound like you would need anything that heavyweight, but it is interesting that uh, like you and I particularly have that shared experience in the past. Uh, but no, it sounds like either the WebSockets thing that could totally work or storing something in the database and then being able to send it down. The one other thing that I've never actually played with, but sounds like it could be relevant here, uh, is server sent events, which are a distinct middle option that I'm super intrigued by because one of my understandings of WebSockets, and maybe this is out of date, but they're complicated. They can like fall down and the, the connection gets lost and then you have to rebroker it and you need like a middle thing to connect stuff and it may all be nonsense that was true five years ago and isn't true anymore, but I've, my understanding is WebSockets have a lot of complexity and overhead, but server send events are just using the same mechanism and they only, they're one directional. So you can send from the server to the client. You cannot send in reverse, which WebSockets have the bi-directional, but maybe that's an option. Don't know that you need a third option here, but maybe. Let's just add one more to my inner rubber ducking as I'm <laughs> deciding which one to go with. I had seen those. Um, I haven't looked into it, so I don't know much about it. But yeah, that was also something that I'd read about WebSockets is that they are, I'd rather they're like the lightweight approach to go with, and then they open up that bi-directional communication, which is convenient and has some benefits to it while going with the more like traditional like HTTP request where then you have to send like headers and you have to make that request and it has to be parsed and then it has to come back that has like a heavier lift but then also for this feature like it's just going to be a one-time communication like after once we know something's successful it's to I yeah I could talk myself honestly into either implementation I think both will be great and I think both will be fun to implement just since it's something that I haven't done yet. So perhaps next time we chat, I'll report back on the implementation that we chose and how it went. But on that note, shall we wrap up? Uh, Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps others find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.